Have you ever been in trouble? No, not you guys. <laughs> I've been in trouble. Once. Once. <laughs> I've been in trouble before. When I was in college, uh, I was a biblical studies major. Uh, I like to joke that I literally have a Bachelor of Arts in Biblical Studies, which means I have a BA and BS, that's correct. But uh, one of the required courses that I had to take uh, in order to graduate with my degree was I I had to take four semesters of a biblical language. And you could choose Greek or you could choose Hebrew because the New Testament is written in Greek. The Old Testament is written in Hebrew with very few exceptions. So I took Greek uh, because, first of all, the New Testament is shorter, so you can read it faster. Secondly, uh, because Greek is related, at least in some ways, to English, where Hebrew is not in any way, shape, or form, which means Greek can be a little bit easier, at least for some people. But you know what? It wasn't easy for me. And I didn't choose my major until I was already a junior, in college, which means that I had four semesters to finish four semesters of Greek. And I got partway through my first semester of Greek, and I realized I am not going to pass this class. It's not going to happen. And I got through my second semester of Greek, and I realized I am not going to pass this class. It's not going to happen. And so I went to the dean of New Testament studies at our school, Dr. Arnold, and I said, Dr. Arnold, I have a problem. I'm a biblical studies major. My grades are generally, you know, at least okay, uh, but not in Greek. I'm not going to pass Greek. That means I'm, I'm not going to graduate on time. And Dr. Arnold says, well, you know, sometimes, and, and I said, I, it's gotten to be such a point with me, I, I'm in so much trouble when I get into Greek class because I'm so far behind, and it doesn't make any sense to me that I need to, uh, I, I get the shakes just being in class. It is stressful just being there, and I feel like I, I don't know how I'm going to learn this. And so we, we arranged an independent study, and I, I spent a summer working hard on Greek, and, uh, and I ended up not graduating on time, but graduating at least. So I, I like to joke that I, I crammed uh, four years of college into five. Uh, but then when I got to my master's degree, I crammed uh, four years of study into three, so it all evens out. So, but anyway, I was in trouble when it came to Greek, and I needed help. Now, there are all kinds of trouble in the world, aren't there? There are all kinds of troubles. We get into trouble uh, with our health, sometimes because we've made bad choices, sometimes because our bodies were just, that's how they are. There's nothing we could have done. We get into trouble with our relationships, don't we? Sometimes because we made bad choices, sometimes because uh, the people around us made bad choices. We get into trouble with our our money. We get into trouble with our happiness. We get into trouble in every conceivable sort of way. There's nothing out there that can't go wrong somehow, is there? So, My favorite kind of trouble, of course, is when you're driving on 198 and you get to the, the passing lanes on the way to Three Rivers and that person who's been doing 40 miles an hour in front of you the whole way is now doing 65. And you're like, what is wrong with you? But don't make it worse, okay? Just patiently go. You're still going to get where you need to go, right? There's all kinds of trouble in our world. 
And what do we do when we need help? Well, when we come to Psalm 116, we find out that, well, when the psalmist was in trouble, and as a matter of fact, it was pretty serious trouble. Did you catch how he described it in Psalm 116? He said, the cords of death entangled me. The anguish of the grave came over me, and I was overcome by distress and sorrow. Wasn't a little thing. He wasn't having a problem passing people on 198. He was in big trouble. He said, then I called on the name of the Lord. Lord, save me. Over the last uh, couple of years, I've been spending a lot of time reading about the French Revolution and the Russian Revolution. Mrs. Karens, you like the Russian Revolution, don't you? Uh, Listening to podcasts about the same, and uh, they're fascinating. The, The past teaches us so much about our present and so much about our future. But one of the things that keeps uh, leaping out to me is that both the French Revolution and the Russian Revolutions happened in part because people said, we've got all of these new tools at our fingertips because of the Enlightenment, the tool of reason, the tool of science, all of these things, and all of the ways that we've lived in the world in the past. We ha- there are new ways we can live in the world now. We can solve problems. We can take care of our troubles in new sorts of ways. Anyway, I just finished this book a month or two ago about the Russian Revolution. And, and one thing I was struck by is uh, Lenin. I don't know if you know much about the Russian Revolution, but Lenin, you know, he, was, he was the head of the Bolshevik Party, of, of basically a minority part of the really serious communist party in Russia. But somehow he ends up at the head of the whole nation. But you need to understand that they had a plan. The Bolsheviks, in particular, had a plan about, well, how, how are we going to come into power? How are we going to bring about the great revolution that will usher in this new golden age? And their plan went something like this. Well, you know, Marx has, has said, basically Marx has prophesied that in order for us to get our socialist revolution first, the bourgeois, you know, the, the, the middle class who are becoming rich, need to rise up and throw off the shackles of these oppressive, you know, tyrannical, totalitarian regimes. Right, the czar in the case of Russia, who was an autocrat. He ruled. His word was law. We need to get the bourgeois to overthrow them, and then we need to kill all of the bourgeois so that the proletariat can rise up. And of course, things didn't work out quite that way in Russia. The way it worked out is they figured out, well, the peasants are actually the big problem. The peasants like their traditions. The peasants like the czar. So a famine came in Russia because they'd been fighting for years, you know, this revolution after revolution. No one is in charge. There's the first world war going on. And finally, the people of Russia are starving. And you know what the the ruling party in Moscow said? Let them starve. Because that's how we'll get our golden age. So there are lots of solutions that we toss out there. And they can be pretty terrifying sorts of solutions because we think often the ends justify the means, don't we? Well, in order to get to our paradise, you know, these people have to die. Our country, not to, I don't mean to harp on this, but our country has tried similar sorts of things. Do you remember the eugenics experiments of the 20th century? Forced sterilizations in different places because it's bad. 
It's bad to have people reproducing when they're genetically flawed. This wasn't uniquely American. It happened throughout the Western world. There are movements. It's, it's amazing to think. I remember reading a book that was written uh, in the early to mid-20th century, the, the 30s or so, and there is a a person, you know, they go to Oxford. It's, it was a British author, and people go to Oxford, and they run into a woman who's the head of the eugenics society. And she's accepted. And they call, you know, this is a normal thing because eugenics is part of what we're doing. We propose all of these solutions that we think will get us what we want, and they end up in these terrible places where we never wanted to go. You know what ended the eugenics movement in many ways was the Nazis. They were firm believers in eugenics, wanted their perfect race. We get in trouble, and sometimes the ways we choose to get out of trouble take us to darker places than we were in the first place. But that's not the way it works with God. See, God's so much stranger than all of the solutions that we would propose. You ever heard the, uh, the phrase, truth is stranger than fiction? This idea of it must be true because who could ever make up some crazy nonsense like that? That's the way God works. Have you noticed that? He makes up this crazy nonsense that somehow takes us where we want to go. Why do we call on the name of the Lord when we're in trouble? Well, first of all, because our solutions often uh, either intentionally or unintentionally don't work out the way we thought they would. But more importantly, and now here we come to the psalm, Because God can be trusted. That's the first reason. Why do we come to God in trouble? Because he can be trusted. Now, here's what the psalm says in particular. Uh, If you go to verse 5, 116 verse 5, the psalmist says, The Lord is gracious and righteous. Our God is full of compassion. Let me unpack that just a bit for us. First of all, that word gracious, that's translated from Hebrew to English here, uh, it's only ever used in the Bible as an attribute of God. It's never used of a human being, only ever used of God. And for example, we see it in Exodus chapter 22, verses 26 to 27, when we're hearing part of the law. And this is the part of the law that we're in. It says, if you take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, return it by sunset, because that cloak is the only covering your neighbor has. If someone says, I want to borrow from you, and you say, well, what will you give me to guarantee that you'll pay me back? And they say, all I've got is my cloak, right? Because remember, people didn't have closets full of clothes. They had one set of clothes very frequently. And not only that, they had one coat, one cloak. And that may be the only thing that keeps them warm at night. And God says, if you encounter a person like this, make sure you return it to them by sunset. Because that cloak is the only covering your neighbor has. What else can they sleep in? And when they cry out to me at night because they are cold, I will hear, for I am compassionate. I am compassionate. I like to think of God's compassion as love in action. Not just the the feeling of affection or, gosh, I feel terrible about the state that that person is in, but God's action that he takes because he cares for you and because he cares for your neighbor and because he cares for all 
of the world. God's compassion is what moves him to act when he hears that someone is hurting. It's what moves him to call the wicked to account as well, and that takes us into God's righteousness. God can be trusted because he is compassionate. He is love in action. God can be trusted because he is righteous. He cares about what's right. He doesn't let the wicked get away with their wickedness forever. In Isaiah chapter 1, verses 16 to 18, we read, Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight and stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. I love how God's justice here is tied up with two things. First of all, seeing the suffering and saying, I'm going to make it right. And secondly, seeing the repentant and saying, I will make you clean. God can be trusted when we're in trouble because he is righteous. Isaiah 5.16, But the Lord Almighty will be exalted by his justice, and the holy God will be proved holy by his righteous acts. See, God's saying, you don't just have to listen to me describe myself. You can see the way I will act, and I will act with justice. God can be trusted because he is gracious, because he is righteous, and because uh, he is compassionate. We've touched on this already just a bit, but let me share with you a couple of verses. One of them you're going to know really well. You remember Psalm 23? Yeah, that's probably the most famous song, as as the children's Bible says. It's number one on the Bible's greatest hits. Psalm 23, and I I think we know the beginning really well, right? It's, uh, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He He restores my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his namesake. See, now we're getting a little bit less familiar, right? <laughs> because it's like, I like the quiet pastures and, and the quiet waters and things like that, but now I've got to be holy too, which is harder. But here's what it says at the very end. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Forever. God's compassion, his love in action for his people. His goodness and love follow his people. How do we know? Because maybe we're here this morning, we're thinking, I don't feel like God's been very just or very compassionate or any of these things in my life in these days. The answer is, as always, the cross of Jesus Christ. That's what the, the truthfulness, the veracity of our faith turns on. What happened on the cross? What was the cross about? Did Jesus rise from the dead or not? Romans 5.8 But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. His love in action. If if you read just prior to that in Romans chapter 5, you know it says, some people might possibly die for a righteous person. Maybe. But that's not what God did. 
He died for unrighteous people. He died for people while they were still a mess. He died for people before they did anything good. He died for people without potential. He didn't say, oh, that I can see how wonderful that person will be, all of the great things that they will do. He just said, no, I love you even in the midst of all of your brokenness. That hasn't changed the, my fatherly love for you. Maybe you know something about this. Maybe you've had children yourselves who have done some pretty awful things. The way that they're living doesn't make people stop and say, that is a lovely person. But they're your kid. And you love them anyway. How much more God's love for us. God can be trusted with our troubles because he is gracious, because he is righteous, and because he is full of compassion. Now, of course, the psalmist here talks about how God rescued me. The cords of death entangled me, but I'm still living. I'm still in the land of the living. I'm praising God and I'm thanking God. But you know what? As we've been talking about, all of these psalms, Psalms 113 to Psalm 118, are part of the Hallel Psalms, which belong to the Passover celebration, which means they were the last songs Jesus sang before he went to the cross. And you know what was, what was true about the cross for Jesus? He died. Does it feel like God rescued him? As a matter of fact, do you remember what the people at the foot of the cross said? They're all waiting. They said, you know, he saved others. Let him save himself. Every, let's wait around and see if God will save him. And did God save him? No. No, he didn't. Jesus died. And Jesus sang this psalm about God's rescue as he was preparing to go to his death. What do you think that was like for him? Do you think it caused him frustration and anger? <laughs> So how come for everyone else, God, but not for me? Maybe. Maybe there was a little bit of that present in him. But I think it did something else for Jesus. See, I think we read this passage in a very natural way for 21st century Western Christians. We think of this as being about me, right? That is, we expect that this psalm is about how God will deliver me. Now, I'm not going to say that this psalm isn't meant to be applied on an individual level. It clearly is. But for Jesus, do you think that perhaps he might have applied this psalm to his own life by thinking God is going to show that he is gracious, righteous, and full of compassion by not rescuing me? Because that was the special call God had on the life of Jesus Christ. By Allowing Jesus to die so that his graciousness, righteousness, and compassion could freely flow through Jesus to a whole host of other people. Because what is the cross ultimately about for us? It's about that Jesus took my sin to the cross. Remember there's uh, in our song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us? It was my sin that held him there. Until it was accomplished. See, maybe Jesus was reading this and thinking, what a wonderful thing. What a wonderful salvation. What a wonderful deliverance from trouble. God is about to give to all of these people, even the ones crucifying me now. 
And what if we were to have that same attitude about God's rescue and deliverance from trouble? That it's not just about making my life easier or making my life better, but that God will take the hardship and the trouble in my life and let something flow through me to others that shows God's graciousness, righteousness, and compassion to the world. We're not Jesus. We can't die for the sins of the world. But this week, I I think again of of Jim Elliott, a Christian missionary, and his friends. They prayerfully resolved to share the gospel with a hostile tribe of people in Ecuador called the the Waudani. I don't know how to say their name, so I'm, I'm sorry. But in an encounter with this tribe's people, you know, they, they tried to approach them carefully and thoughtfully, uh, but ultimately, in one of their encounters early on, Jim Elliott and all of his friends were killed. And just prior to this, Elliott wrote in his diary what has become a famous saying. He wrote, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That I can give up my life. He knew. He knew what he was doing. I may lose my life, but I couldn't keep that anyway. Remember Jesus, whoever uh, loves his life will lose it. Whoever tries to save his life will lose it. Whoever gives up his life for my sake and the sake of the kingdom will save it. But that's not the end of the story. Several years later, Jim Elliott's widow Elizabeth was invited to live among the Waodani people. And through this relationship, many of the Waodani became followers of Jesus Christ. Because God's grace and justice and compassion flowed through Jim Elliott's trouble. And it can follow through your trouble too, all of our trouble. Through your miscarriage, through your illness, through your financial loss, through your professional disaster, through your family brokenness. Nothing is off limits to God's work where he can show that he is gracious, righteous, and compassionate. 2 Corinthians 1.4 says that God is the, he's the God of all comfort who comforts us in all of our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. Notice it doesn't say, uh, who comforts us in all of our troubles so that we will be comfortable. Someone once described the job of the church to make the uncomfortable to comfort the uncomfortable and to make the comfortable uncomfortable. Say, God is bigger than that. He has more for you than that. So what do we do when we're in trouble? Well, we can trust God with it, because he's worthy, because he's gracious, righteous, and compassionate, and he will deliver us, even if his deliverance is more about the people around us than about you and I. Secondly, what happens when we call on the Lord? Because that's, that's the big question. We've been dancing around it a bit. Will God save me or will he not? What happens when we call on the Lord? Well, it says, the psalmist says here in, in Psalm 116 that he has delivered, he has been delivered from death, his eyes from tears, and his feet from stumbling. And I'm going to take this in reverse order because that's just the way I am. 
God will deliver us from stumbling. What does that mean? God will make a way for us when we are in trouble, whether it's a way to rescue for us or a way to faithfulness to the end. Because that's why Jesus, that's how Jesus sang this psalm. Psalm 121, another famous one. I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? From the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. He's always paying attention. He will make a way for us to keep our footsteps firm, whether that's to an immediate rescue or faithfulness to the end. That faithfulness to the end part, I think Jesus tells us about that in Matthew chapter 10, beginning in verse 17. He says, be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. (laughs) Thank you, Jesus. That's the promise I was looking for. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, when, right, not if, when they arrest you, Do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you, because God will make your footsteps sure. Whether it's to the rescue you want now or to be faithful to the end, so that that goodness and and love and mercy flows through you to the people around you. Secondly, we are delivered from tears. I think we're being pointed to the fact that God will give us cause for hope and joy. Psalm chapter 30, verses, uh, beginning in verse 11. You turned my wailing into dancing. You removed my sackcloth and clothed me with joy, that my heart may sing your praises and not be silent. You know, it's interesting... Uh, It doesn't say you changed my circumstances. It says you changed me. You turned my wailing into dancing. In Matthew chapter 9, a synagogue ruler comes to Jesus and says, Heal my daughter. She is dying. Actually, he says, My daughter has just died, but come and put your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus got up and went with him, and so did his disciples. And when Jesus entered the synagogue leader's house and saw the noisy crowd and people playing pipes, he said, Go away! The girl is not dead but asleep. And they all laughed at him because they knew what death looked like. And after the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took the girl by the hand, and she got up. He turned the wailing into dancing. And then finally, in Revelation chapter 21, verses 3 to 4, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. And he will be their God, and they will be his people. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. See, that's the reminder, you know, last year when my back started hurting and I realized my back might hurt for the rest of my life, it may never be better. It reminded me of something. My hope is not that my back will be better tomorrow. My hope is that someday I will live in a world without bad backs. 
We don't want this world forever. We want God's new world where he's made right all the things that have gone wrong. Finally, uh, we started with maybe the easy ones. God uh, will deliver us uh, from stumbling, making our footsteps sure. He will give us a new perspective so that our tears don't define us any longer. And finally, he will deliver us from death. We're still in the Easter season, so this is particularly appropriate. What this teaches us, I think, is that every defeat of God's people is only apparent, not real. Because we are the people of resurrection. You know, in these days, I think a lot of Christians are feeling defeated, especially in our country. It feels like, you know, we used to have good things and now we don't have good things. It feels like, you know, we we used to have a voice in our culture and now that voice is being stamped out. It feels like the culture is becoming more hostile toward Christianity each and every day. Now, we talked last week about the fact that we need to be careful about talking about how we're persecuted because our persecution is incredibly mild compared to what a number of people experience around the world. Go to China, go to Indonesia, go to North Africa. They can tell you about being persecuted. We're just starting to figure it out over here. But even so, we can feel discouraged, can't we? The continued diminishing of the church of God in the United States of America. But remember, the decline of the church is only apparent. It's not real. And here's why. First of all, Jesus promised that that would be true. In Matthew 16, 18, Peter confesses, Jesus, you are the Christ. Jesus says, that's well done, Peter. This has been revealed to you, not by any person, but by my Father in heaven. The Holy Spirit has taught you this. And he says, I tell you that you are Peter. Because his, his Hebrew name, or his Aramaic name, was Simon. He says, I tell you, you are Peter, which in Greek is Petros, which sounds like petrified for a good reason because it means rock. I am renaming you rock. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. That means death will not overcome it. Romans 6, 5. For if we have been united with Jesus in a death like his, which in context is through baptism, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. There's this great moment in uh, the James Bond movie. Uh, uh, oh, shoot. What's that one? Uh, yeah, I know. There's like 30 of them. Thanks, Ian. Uh, well, that really narrows it down for us. Uh, it came out a few years ago. Uh, Bond was uh, Daniel Craig and Judy Dench is M. And uh, there's a, a part where Bond confronts the villain on, on an island, an abandoned, creepy island. And, you know, he's, he has been uh, shot and, and he's come back to, to work, but he's really not full strength yet. And, and the, the villain says, you're, you're a loser. You can't make this. You know, they've sent you out here unprepared. You know, who do you think you are? And Bond says something along the lines of, well, my hobby is resurrection. And it's this great moment in the film. You're like, yeah, he's going to get him. But you know what? That's who we are. We are the people whose hobby is resurrection. We are the people who can't be defeated because we come back to life again. Whether it is tomorrow or whether it's in a thousand years or whenever Jesus will return, 
All of our defeats are only apparent. None of them are real. There is no weapon that can win against God's people finally and forever. There's this great scene, one more here before we move on, in the Old Testament where the prophet Elijah, you know, he's just had this big battle, won a great victory for God on Mount Carmel. And all the prophets of Baal have been slaughtered. And and then Queen Jezebel says, Elijah, I am going to kill you. You are going to die. And that's just the straw that broke Elijah's back. He says, I've done so much and it's never enough. And he runs away. And God finds him. And it's this wonderful story about how God doesn't say, you coward. But he says, Elijah, you are exhausted. Here's, Here's some food. Take a nap. I wish God said that to me every day. <laughs> and Elijah keeps running. You know, God knows he, he's still running. So eventually he runs all the way to the mountain of God, and God meets him there, and they have a conversation. And Elijah says, you know, I, I'm, the only, I'm the only faithful person left. That's how bad it's gotten in Israel. I can't do it. Don't, don't make me go back. You know what God said to Elijah? He said, I have kept for myself 7,000 in Israel who have never bowed their knees to Baal. They are faithful. I know you can't see him. I know you don't know him. I don't know. I know you don't know where they are. That's okay. I didn't send you to them, Elijah. I sent you to the rest. See, the church always has hidden reserves of strength that God keeps and that we may not even know about, but it's there nonetheless. See, God's deliverance from death reminds us that our every trouble, our every loss is not the final word. Now, just one more thought before we we finish here. As I read this psalm, it's 19 verses long. It just goes left and right and up and down. I mean, there's so much here. It was overwhelming trying to think, what do you preach out of this? But every time I came to verse 7, I stopped. I love it. I love it. What does God do with us? Uh, What do we do when we're in trouble? We call on God because he's worthy. He's gracious, righteous, and compassionate. What, what does God do for people who are in trouble? Well, he gives them firm footing, delivers them from stumbling. He delivers them from tears and he delivers them from death. What about today? Because some of those things, you know, they're not going to happen today. How do we live each moment when we're in trouble? Verse 7. Return to your rest, my soul. For the Lord has been good to you. Return to your rest, my soul, for the Lord has been good to you. This idea of rest, it's a condition or a place of being home, well supplied and provided for. It's a word not used very often in the Old Testament, but maybe the most profound usage of it uh, for our purposes is in Ruth. Chapter 3, verse 1. Remember the story of Ruth? Ruth marries, uh, she is a Gentile. She marries a Jew. Uh, her Jewish husband dies. Her, all the males in the family die. 
And Naomi, the, the sole remaining woman, says to Ruth, go, go home. You know, go back to your family. I've got nothing for you. Uh, I've got a hopeless life ahead of me. Ruth says, no, I'm going to go with you. So they go back to Israel. And then this is, what, this is what Naomi says to Ruth. My daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. That's that word, rest. My daughter, I must uh, find a resting place for you where you will be provided for. See, that's what God promises to us in the midst of our trouble. For today, we have a resting place. We have a place where we are provided for. It's not a, a physical place so much as a state, a state of being. God has promised that wherever we are, if we remember what God has done in the past, if we remember what God will do in the future, we can have certainty today. We can have peace today. Maybe it's another way of saying it in the book of Philippians, uh, chapter 4, verses 6 to 7. This is a, another famous one. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and petition, make your request known to God. And the peace of God that passes all of your understanding will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. See, it isn't just about what God will do. It's about what God has done. I think so often when trouble comes, we get tunnel vision. We see only this moment or the immediate future and all of the fallout from our trouble, all the harm that trouble can bring. But what about all that God has done? The Lord has been good to you, says the psalm. And that's a past tense thing. How has God been good to you in the past? Because he's the same God today that he was in the past. Last weekend at Matt's wedding, I saw baby Jameson. Do you remember praying for him here in this place? Shortly after his birth, he needed open-heart surgery. I saw him, and it struck me powerfully that here was a living, breathing miracle. Here was the promise of God's rest. I could touch it. I didn't ask to hold it because I don't care for babies, but I could have. <laughs> Long ago, before we had a plethora of children... Uh, Kayla and I had just been married. We went to, uh, visited a church. We were looking for a church that would be our church. And uh, a, a couple invited us over. They were in charge, I think, of the music ministry at the church. And they were a little older than we were. And they had a brand new baby. And we went to their house. And, uh, and they said, oh, would you like to hold the baby? I said, oh, no, thank you. <laughs> they said, no, really, it's okay. And I said, no, really, it's okay. <laughs> That has nothing to do with anything. Uh, <laughs> but that's the God we have. We have living, breathing miracles in our lives. We have Jamesons everywhere. And we can treat our anxiety over trouble with the medicine of God's past goodness and his future promises. And all of this takes us to rest. Return to your rest. That's why we sang, my chains are gone this morning. Amazing grace, right? 
Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I am found. I was blind, but now I see. What do we do with trouble in our lives? We go to the one who is worthy because he is gracious and righteous and compassionate. We remember that his promises are sure footsteps through trouble, even when we can't see it, are a new perspective that takes care of our tears and the promise that God is in the habit of resurrection, more even than James Bond. We remember that God has in plan for us a rest that comes from reflecting on his past goodness and his future promises. And that's enough. That's enough for each and every day.